Thank you, Maureen, and everyone at Aspen Institute for inviting me to address you today. I want to start by thanking all of you for being here today to discuss every worker's right to organize in this country. Workers' organizing is democracy in action. It's the exercise of the fundamental right, the free choice to combine your power and advocate together. And it's a human right, not limited by where you live or where you work. I feel this fact personally. My parents came from, to the United States from Ireland looking for economic opportunity. They found that opportunity when my father joined a union as a construction laborer. He not only got a better wage, he got a seat at the table. I joined that same union and was elected its president. Later, I was elected to public office and represent my community as a state legislator in Massachusetts and as mayor of the city of Boston. So I'm here as labor secretary because of workers' rights to organize. It's something I believe deeply in. And it's something this administration is committed to supporting for all workers. So I was very honored when President Biden asked me to help lead the White House Task Force on Worker Organizing and Empowerment with Vice President Kamala Harris. We are promoting workers' rights and collective bargaining across the federal government and all across our economy. We are recognizing the value of unions to our workplaces, our communities, and our democracy. This comes after decades in which the balance of power was tilted against workers. From 1979 to 2020, economic productivity grew by over 60%, but the average hourly pay grew by only 17%. That's what happens when workers lose power. Now, we have an opportunity to restore the balance. A historic economic recovery is creating jobs, and workers are seeing better opportunities. They are changing jobs with better pay and benefits, or starting their own businesses. They are looking for childcare, paid leave, and flexibility. Their interest in joining a union is at a 50-year high. And at the Department of Labor, we are focused on empowering all workers with outreach and education, with enforcement of legal protections, and by improving working people's bargaining power in the labor market. And we are working in a whole-of-government approach to level the playing field and put the power back in the hands of working people. And that's going to make our economy more competitive and more resilient over the long run. President Biden has pledged to put power back in the hands of working people, and that's what we're doing. I appreciate you all having these essential conversations on workers' right to organize. Thank you again, and good luck to all of you participating in this important event. Thank you so much to Secretary Walsh. We really appreciate those remarks. Um, and now let me quickly introduce our panel and moderator, um, our panel, we have a fabulous panel today. You can find their bios on our website and you'll learn more about them as the conversation gets rolling. So let me quickly just uh, do a quick names to faces uh, introduction. Today we have joining us Dr. Annalise Orlick, Professor of History at Dartmouth College, Jennifer Epps, Executive Director of the Lift Fund, Gwaibahat, Head of Bloomberg Data, and we are so thankful to have Sharice Jones economic opportunity reporter from USA Today to moderate today's discussion. Uh, Shreeves writes about income inequality, economic access, and the way the workplace is changing amid the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and in, in addition to her award-winning reporting, Shreeves is also the author of several books, including the American Book Award-winning Shifting the Double Lives of Black Women in America. Shreeves, thank you so much for joining us, and let me turn it over to you. Thank you so much. It's so great to be here to talk about this important and timely topic. And before we get our conversation going, I wanted to frame it a little bit so we can kind of think a little bit about this issue, which is so pertinent uh, to American workers. The pandemic really illuminated and magnified the types of challenges many workers face in the workplace, especially those in frontline jobs, people who were taking care of the elderly and the sick, who were standing behind store and restaurant counters, who were working in factories and warehouses. Many of those workers have talked about and told me in my reporting how they were barely able to make ends meet because of low wages and how in the midst of a once in a century pandemic, they often didn't have the option to take sick days with pay or they didn't have the equipment they needed to protect their health. Those circumstances drove a wave of activism as workers and worker advocates fought for better treatment. And then as the U.S. began to grapple with a labor shortage in some industries, we saw a wave of strikes and other actions as workers began using newfound leverage to demand higher pay, 
better benefits and stronger workplace protections. There are those who specifically want unions. McDonald's employees have staged one-day walkouts all over the country, calling on their workforce to organize. Starbucks workers in more than 110 stores in 26 states have filed petitions to unionize with the National Labor Relations Board. And three in Arizona and Buffalo, New York, have decided to join a union. And Amazon workers in Alabama and New York have taken or plan to take votes to do the same. Those who are in unions are walking off the job, in some cases for the first time in decades, from the United Auto Workers to Kellogg employees who went on strike last year. The benefits of unions for those who belong to them have been documented by many economists. Membership increases the household wealth for all workers, but it gives a particular boost to workers of color, increasing their earnings, offering access to retirement savings, and providing other benefits critical for financial security and closing the, the racial wealth gap. One report that I wrote about found that white union households had almost twice the median wealth of white households that did not include a union member. For Black union households, the wealth difference was three times greater. And for Latino union households, the difference in wealth was five times greater. But as Maureen said, union memberships have dropped by roughly half in the last 40 years, and resistance remains strong, not only from many corporations, but from some workers who feel such membership raises the cost of goods, doesn't benefit the entire labor force, and leads to unemployment as jobs move from state to state or even overseas. So what do we need to do? Where has the American worker been? And how do workers move forward? Annalise, I'd love to start with you. If you could take us back in time and paint a picture of what it was like around the time that the National Labor Relations Act was passed, you know, what was the national mood? What were the challenges of work in the economy? We need your volume. We can't hear you. Okay, great. Um, at the time that the, the National Labor Relations Act was passed in 1935, it came after decades of, of worker organizing, um, you know, fundamentally for the right to organize, but for things we now take for granted that the National Labor Relations Act and its twin three years later, the Fair Labor Standards Act gave us the weekend, minimum wage, maximum hours, um, basic safety standards. So they'd been organizing and usually federal power was brought in against them. Um, often in the form of National Guard troops being called in uh, by governors. And, um, and, and as well, the, the act that we think of as breaking up monopolies, the Sherman Antitrust Act, was used repeatedly to try to break up strikes that were able to extend beyond a single state. So um, that was, that was the, the lead up. What started to happen in the, in the 1910s and 20s was a transformation of the view of workers in, in those politicians who were coming into power. The Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire in 1911 was a very important event because it was witnessed by Francis Perkins, um, who would go on to be Franklin Roosevelt's Secretary of Labor and one of the architects of the National Labor Relations Act and the Fair Labor Standards Act. It was a fire that killed people in the district of, um, of State Senator Wagner, who also whose name would go on the National Labor Relations Act. Um, and so you began to get a shift and um, and I think that the shift, I want to make clear, the shift would not have happened um, if worker organizing had not continued. And the unrest of the early years of the Depression um, was profound. It was national. And it definitely uh, went behind the, the passage of those acts. However, um, as one of the executives of the NAACP said at the time, uh, that along with the Social Security Act created, as he said, a social safety net just big enough for most black people in the country to fall through. The reason for that was that it didn't cover um, it didn't cover agricultural workers and it didn't cover domestic workers. Um, and, you know, in terms of the jobs that people of color, particularly women of color had, uh, they were not included. That was so they could get the act passed 
Southern Democratic Committee chairs and uh, also folks in the West who really wanted to ensure uh, a continued agricultural and domestic labor force. However, um, the fact remains that that's the single weakest part of the NLRA, and we can talk more about what needs to happen after. Uh, final thought um, is that we all think about Section 7A, right, which, um, you know, which I think Secretary of Walsh alluded to. It it gave workers the right to organize and and sparked you know a, a national organizing surge under the slogan the president wants you to join a union that was an important shift and and maybe we're back there again with a very pro pro labor president and in terms of the fair labor standards act i mean did that kind of give more teeth to the national labor relations act did it build upon it i mean what was what was that role well, it, you know, it, it really was something that Secretary Perkins absolutely wanted to pass because the right to organize was one thing. But again, having been an eyewitness to the Triangle Fire in which 146 uh, young people, mostly young women, some of them teenage girls, died, you know, in the middle of Manhattan on a, you know, on a warm spring afternoon, tens of thousands saw this. She was among them. The Fair Labor Standards Act was, you know, a really, it was a broader attempt to regulate the workplace, to make it safer um, and also to establish the idea that there should be a federal standard for how many hours a week workers had to work. Uh, it gave us the weekend, it gave us overtime, um, all of those things which were not included in the original National Labor Relations Act. And Jennifer, you're an experienced organizer and you've worked on innovations in that realm or in that space. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your group, and how the history of the Labor Relations Act and the labor movement writ large informs what your group and your various partners are trying to do today. Thanks, Cherise. So um, I've had experience, I've been uh, organizing workers uh, for 16, over 16 years around working conditions from health, frontline healthcare workers to teachers. And now as the executive director of the Lyft Fund, what I've been have the what I have the honor and privilege of working on is really this unique collaboration between labor and worker centers being able to partner together um, to make change. We uh, we're seeing in real life what is an example of an amazing example of what happens when labor community um, philanthropy work together to actually fund and have a shared agenda around racial and social justice and economic solidarity together. So being a part of the Lyft Fund has been allow allowing us to really see that close up and how, um, particularly in the South, because we are now working on the Southern Worker Opportunity Fund, we, we think of it as the critical next piece to building worker power. I think connecting it back to the, the National Labor Relations Act. So we look at uh, the, the NLRA um, ha, ha, has been here to do a lot of things. And I think it has improved workers' lives tremendously from its inception, but also it's not like, what would it look like for it to be a statute that does include other marginalized sectors, folks who are not included in the National Labor Relations Act as it is. I mean, we're seeing now from um, Amazon and to Starbucks, and like you said, Therese earlier, folks are, having this energy and organizing and rising up to demand um, better working conditions, but the NLRA doesn't always have sufficient support um, or protections for those workers, right? So companies are blatantly violating the law um, and are seeing that there's little consequences for actually doing so. So I think for us at Lyft, we're, we're committed to supporting workers who are trying to organize and investing in the labor movement because we know that that's what happens when workers have power, the country wins and all workers win. And for the layman and laywoman that might be listening, what is a worker center? Uh, a worker center is a place where there are folks who generally are working together. That's not, it's not a union necessarily, but they are helping in terms of increasing power and standards for a group of workers in that, in whichever, uh, sector they're, that they're in. Sometimes it's Black worker centers, sometimes there are um, Latino worker centers that they are, and, and construction worker centers that they are working on, um, working with to, to improve conditions and um, standards in that industry, in that, in that space.
So it's really pushing forward the idea that beyond unions, you can still have these worker collectives that can achieve change, right? It doesn't have to be a union specifically. It doesn't have to, but a lot of times what we've seen at Lyft, how they work together works really well. I think in terms of having a worker center and a labor union to ensure that there's a collective bargaining agreement, that the standards could be withheld, and that the worker center plays a different role in making sure that those workers are, you know, are looking at things outside of work as well to improve lives and, and livelihoods and, and conditions that don't just, they aren't in with, within the four walls of their actual work. And Roy, let's uh, get you into the conversation a little bit. Um, you invest in startups with a focus on ventures that help to build the future of work. Tell us a bit about yourself, Bloomberg Beta, and how the history of work and the right to organize influences your vision and how your company is playing a role in shaping that. Sure. Thank you. <clears throat> uh, it's great to hear the history because when I started doing this work of investing in startups. I never expected that organized labor would become my number one focus as an area at which to look. And I'll explain how I got there, which is I've worked in a bunch of different settings. I worked in government. I worked in a Fortune 500 company. I work, I've worked in academia. I still teach at Berkeley. I started a company. And now for almost the last 10 years, I've been an investor in startups, a venture capitalist. And across all those settings, what I saw was that work didn't function very well, didn't work. You know, for those who didn't have enough work, they were suffering from a lack of work. And for those like many of us, my guess is people listening to this broadcast and those of us here, the experience of actually working sometimes produces suffering. And so when we started Bloomberg Beta, which is Bloomberg's VC firm, because Bloomberg focuses on serving all of the business world, we decided to focus on the future of work and believed it had to be improved. And that launched us on a quest to try to understand exactly what problems were we looking to solve. And this was, if you rewind, you know, five, six, seven years ago when the headlines were all about how robots were going to take all the jobs. You know, we were the first venture capital firm to focus on the future of work and the first ones to focus on artificial intelligence specifically. So we thought, hey, if that's going to happen, we're the bad guys here and we got to figure out how to fix that. And so we studied deeply the connection between technology and work. And what we discovered is, first of all, we don't really need to worry about the future of work that much because there's enough to worry about in the present of work of what people are experiencing. And specifically, what people told us that they wanted, whether it was in small group settings, one-on-one -on -one surveys, and not just for people like us who have jobs where we talk and type, but for what we now call essential workers, what they said they wanted was dignity. And dignity has a very particular meaning. It means, of course, there's the common meaning of a sense of honor and respect that people accord to themselves and we accord to them. But there's also a sense of fitting in of, is my work necessary? Is my work, um, I mean, the word essential wasn't part of the work vocabulary then. And when we discovered that, the truth is we didn't see much of a role for organized labor at the time, in part because so few private sector companies were organized. And so we didn't see it as something that needed to be part of the solution. But as we've looked at one solution after another, it's pretty clear to me that we won't find our way out of this unless we reinvent the approach to organized labor. Because what workers are saying about dignity that they want is they want pay, they want stability of income, and then once they have that stability, they want more income, and they want say. They want the ability to feel powerful, and we say have a seat at the table, but that's really about, um, about say. And then all of this latest wave of organizing began to kick up. And uh, we have seen the way that working people act when they're the, the, the solutions that the economy presents to them are unsatisfactory. They do extreme things at the polls. We all do extreme things at the polls. And so this wave started to sweep in and I began to see that this is just inevitable. Working people are going to seek change and use the good tools at their disposal. And they see that most industries fared very well 
during the pandemic. And they're just asking, well, why didn't that reach me? And um, so now the way we see our role is that if you imagine this wave is inevitable, what do we have to do? Well, we have to figure out a way to make it more functional because it's pretty clear that the traditional methods, the answer is not going to be to rewind time and do it the way we did it in the past. You know, that mostly worked for white men and not for everybody across the society. The tools, and we'll talk more about this, have become quite outdated. And so our role as investors is to support CEOs who want to reimagine this. And we've had an effort going with Aspen that's been a business roundtable on organized labor so that business people can consider our part of the equation, but then also to support experiments. What are the new tools? What are the new ways? And you know, Jennifer was talking about the symbiotic collaboration between worker centers and unions. That's one example of a type of mode that is now thriving. What are the thousand other things we need to try to create something functional? And, you know, Jennifer, can you kind of talk a little bit about, I mean, we do have this wave that's happening. So people are finding a voice and finding some means, but there have clearly been a lot of obstacles to organizing in, in recent years. What are some of those obstacles and, and how are you uh, and your organization trying to get around them? I think there are a lot of obstacles that... Um similar to the ones that Annalise brought up before that led us to the point where we were able to get the National Labor Relations Act. Maybe not as intense, where, um, but in some cases, just as bad. I think the fact of the matter, we are seeing uh, very huge companies spend a lot of money fighting workers to be able to organize and win a voice at work. I think about a story, um, one of my first organizing drives with home care workers, similar to my grandmother who came here from Honduras and became a home care worker and was making less than $10 an hour, these home care workers in DC. And the company spent, they wanted a union, the company spent a lot of money um, intimidating them and bullying them and they were unsuccessful in their organizing drive. And I think that's one of the biggest pieces that we're seeing is that folks who want to organize uh, who are in a position, particularly uh, folks who, who've been marginalized, Black and Brown um, workers, women, uh, want to be able to do these things in the way, and they have to overcome the fear and challenges of knowing, hey, I might lose my job if I do this, right? I might um, not be able to feed my family. I know that this is the right thing to do, but it's the hard thing to do. And we, as a, as a, as a lift fund, and as the as the folks who are trying to work to change the NLRA, we have to do all that we can to make sure that they have a fighting chance. And I think that is what the Lift Fund is doing: is figuring out how does the the community organizations, the the government, how does the um, how do the unions and the worker centers all work together to, to make sure that folks have a fair shake in organizing and that people are in the community are supporting. And Annalise, can you jump in here and talk a little bit about what's, you know, transpired? We had this huge uptick in union membership through the early 50s. You had the UN Declaration on Human Rights saying that there was a right to organize and then union membership just began to plummet. And so can you speak a little bit about what happened over the last few decades that has led to this and the need to kind of renew and redefine organizing? Yes, um, I know my job here is to do history and I will in one second, but I just wanted to pick up on a couple of things um, that Jennifer and Roy said, because I think they're really important. The issue of dignity and respect right now is is profound and you can't put a dollar amount on it. And um, the I interviewed the first two women who um, had led a strike in a Walmart in the United States in 2012. Their organization is literally called Our Walmart Organization United for Respect, Fast Food Worker Alliance, uh, people that I interviewed, the RESPECT Fast Food Worker Alliance. Um, and I interviewed a Walmart worker who did a freedom ride to Walmart headquarters. And she said she was really struck because people were literally hungry. They literally didn't have enough food on the table. But the first thing they wanted to talk about was being treated with respect. So that's an issue that that we can't avoid. As far as obstacles, um, also when um, Jennifer was talking, I thought about the fact that for the Walmart workers, Walmart literally hired the same 
um, you know, industrial espionage, international, um, you know, security firm that that defense contractors were hiring, right, to to spy on, you know, these low wage workers, which the workers thought was was really amusing. But as Roy points out, you know, you can spend a lot of money um, to to try to stop unionism and um, not so much to pay the workers. Okay, back very quickly on um, history, which I know I'm supposed to do. Um, the NLRA um, really first started to be gutted. There was a huge surge of, of organizing in the 30s and through World War II. For 1946, I think, was the biggest strike year in American history after the war ended. And then 1947 was the passage of the Taft-Hartley Act. And the Taft-Hartley Act really was intended to limit the power of unions um, as outlined in the National Labor Relations Act. Um, it banned closed shops by saying that, and what a closed shop is, is the union has won an agreement with the employer and then everyone who comes into that shop who's hired has to join. Um, it banned that. It banned unions' power uh, to bring in other unions or other companies to boycott an employer, what's called a secondary boycott. Um, interestingly, it had a free speech clause, but um, it uh, pushed unions to get rid of anyone who had had ties to the U.S. Communist Party, which was really involved in organizing in the 30s. So that happened. Nevertheless, um, union power continued to grow through the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Um, and you had, I think, at one point upwards of uh, 30% of, of workers in the country belonging to unions. Um, with the election of Ronald Reagan, um, unions had become so established that they kind of, you know, they had they had gone over to the conservative side in many cases and a group of air traffic controllers in their union, uh, uh, they endorsed Reagan, uh, he was elected, uh, they, they called a strike in 1981 for shorter hours, for more safety um, controls and for more money, a very highly skilled job. Anyway, Reagan broke the air traffic controllers strike uh, because federal employees uh, did not have a, a right, a legal right to strike, fired 11 of the 13,000 strikers, brought in non-union workers. And this became a pattern um, that took place throughout the 1980s. So I'm thinking of, um, there were strikes at Phelps Dodge, uh, Hormel Meats, International Paper um, in the 90s at the Detroit Free Press and um, in 2016, uh, communication workers uh, struck Verizon. In each case, the company fired striking workers and brought in um, non-union strikers. And that pattern, starting with the Patco strike, um, was really what started to gut unions. So I think those are all the reasons that union membership fell, as well as a change in capitalism that we can talk about. Um, the upsurge that everybody's been talking about, and I hope we'll talk about it a little more later, has really been of a new kind, right? So um, fast food workers, service workers, hotel workers, home health care workers, um, and, you know, and, and public workers. And it's a, it's a women's movement a lot, and it's a people of color movement. So it's a really different labor movement than, than the one that led to the NLRA. And speaking to that a little bit, one of the um, audience members had a question. Have there ever been any meaningful efforts to reform NLRA in Congress to make it more inclusive of all the workers that were ex excluded? And if, and if so, why? If, if not, why not? Um, it's been very hard to get through because Taft-Hartley very much limited its power. Instead, not, you know, we can talk about that in the end when we get to what we have to do. Um, there have been attempts to pass uh, state laws. So, for example, um, the United Farm Workers pushed successfully in the 1970s in California for the California um, Agricultural Labor Relations Act. Um, and that's really a model for trying to build some of the protections um, that cover other workers um, into the the structure of labor for farm workers, but it was only last year that they they were able to get um, the same protection in terms of an eight hour day that the Fair Labor Standards Act gave other workers. Farm workers were always expected to do more, um, and their wage structure was less. You know, Roy, the the right to organize crosses several systems, right? Each of which have their challenges. We've got a corporate culture that's often anti union. Um, as we've talked about, we've got laws or a regulatory framework that's got a lot of holes in it. Um, there are groups of workers who might be struggling to build a framework to organize, and unions have had their own problems. What do you see as some of the biggest issues that kind of cross all of these systems, 
and make it a lot harder for workers to have a voice? Well, the good news is everybody agrees on one thing. And I've talked to business leaders. I've talked to union leaders, to labor leaders who are not in unions, working people, folks in government. Everybody agrees the current system is broken. Uh, it's very hard to find somebody who says, let's just do it exactly the way we're doing it, other than maybe some of the vendors who are involved, like maybe some lawyers are not as, uh, as sold on change. And my read of the history, although Annalise is, a, uh, is an expert a thousand times more than I am, but my read of the history, and I'd be curious for her perspective, is that often, but not always, law follows what happens in reality, that workers would go and strike illegally. And then that kind of strike, having been seen by legislators later to be beneficial, might then be included in the, you know, in the framework of law. And so the way I think about it is, what are the things we can do? And if I look at business leaders, because I want to start with my home community, you know, CEOs have a lot of biases that don't serve them anymore. You know, they many of them have learned in school that unions are deadweight loss, and they've learned this microeconomics framework that causes them to always reject unions, or almost always. Second is many of them take organizing personally. When their workplace organizes, they think, what did I do wrong? Oh my gosh, that you should need such a horrible thing. Now, a board of a company doesn't say, what did I do wrong when the CEO asks for more money or more something? It's just, that's what people do is they try to advocate for more. And so we know that even well-intentioned CEOs, even CEOs who are the children of union organizers themselves, feel like they can't participate in the system in a way that is constructive. And, um, you know, there are many issues around this, the culture of work, work providing benefits has led to a culture of paternalism in the workplace. But what the, the net effect of all of it is that for business, the knee jerk response is to treat the union as an enemy. And I think that's just not going to work going forward. And what we need are intrepid business leaders who are willing to try something new you know, in Judaism, we have this idea of the first person who went to cross the Red Sea before it was obvious the Red Sea was going to part. That person's name was Nachshon. And that person walked in up to their head before the Red Seas parted, or so goes the interpretation. And that's the kind of courage that I think we're going to need to see business leaders show, because I really think there's a case to be made that the most important business skill of the next 20 years, one that isn't taught right now at most business schools, is how to collaborate with an organized workforce. And then, you know, of course, people in government think the systems are antiquated, but any discussion to reform the system runs into these polarized attacks. I mean, you know, the TEAM Act, which was a Republican-driven act that's now had its second go, there's a case to be made that some of what's in there is really useful, that workers would rather have a non-vote, having been on many boards, I think having a non-voting worker-elected representative on a board is better than no worker representation. But traditional labor and union says like, this is horrible, come out against it. It's an attempt to replace unions. They might be right about that. I'm not saying that they're wrong about that, but it prevents us from having a good discussion. And then when I look at labor and I intentionally say labor and not unions, because I think the two are not synonymous, unions are both critical and not the only way. Labor, institutionalized labor, often focuses like all institutions on its own self-preservation on making sure that the elected leaders don't criticize the membership, you know, that kind of thing. And unions are large organizations and large organizations have some common problems across all of them, you know, disconnection from the base. If you talk to working people, I'll just say, you know, they say things like, I'm afraid, you know, that fear is the thing. And I think that both Jennifer and Annalise were getting at this fear of organizing is what's holding them back. And I think we need to create some conditions the, the market is helping us, right? The labor shortage is helping us. New communication tools that allow workers to communicate um, anonymously without surveillance from the company are helping. But there's also, I'll just say, this knee-jerk attitude on behalf of workers that the boss is the enemy. Solidarity with all people. But the boss, the boss is a pig. And that just doesn't make sense to me. Like, we have got to get out of this working together and figure out some solutions. And there are some green shoots, you know, we've seen in the tech industry, 
examples of non-union organizing that have really been effective. These women at Amazon who got Amazon to move on climate change, you know, some um, workers at Google who got Google to stop serving certain clients, um, the Google walkout. And so I think that labor is in the air right now. You can see it on TikTok. I even fund with some other folks um, uh, some grants for new stories about labor. Workers have more power than they had a few years ago. And we got to figure out some experiments to run because in the absence of that, we'll get what we've gotten, which is the big unions, you know, their, their members say they're too focused on elected officials and politics and not focused enough on direct value. We just kind of got to bring it back to basics. So I'm for, I, I guess I'd say I'm team experimentation here for trying new things and seeing what works. You know, Jennifer and Annalise jump in here. I mean, what do you think about that? I mean, you know, are unions one kind of antiquated model that's useful, but really should not dictate how we try and bring about change in the workplace and, and dignity and fair compensation? Or, you know, what do you think about what, what Roy was talking about? Jennifer, do you have thoughts? <laughs> Go ahead, Annalise. I'll talk to you. All right. Um, one, uh, you know, I'm always asked when I talk about um, my, my last book was on what I call the uprising against poverty wages around the around the world and in the United States. And um, one fact that we absolutely have to talk here is that we're not just talk about we're not just talking about the decline in unions. We're talking about a 40 year decline in real wages. Right. Which means what you can buy with your paycheck. Um, that is the definition of a broken system. And it's the first thing that has to um, be addressed now. Um, you know, yes, unions have been discriminatory and unions have been dominated, you know, the leadership has been dominated by white men, although that's starting to change. Um, but, you know, and, and we have had the formation of all these new kinds of movements, including worker centers. All of it is really important. But when I looked at uh, who funded a lot of the organizing that took place in um, fight for $15, for example, and um, in the uh, the retail workers movement and Restaurant Opportunities Council, all of these very grassroots kinds of um, worker uprisings. Uh, the unions were absolutely crucial. SEIU for Fight for 15, um, the food and commercial workers for, um, you know, looking at helping grocery workers and retail workers to organize. They can't always get into unions. It's very difficult, you know, to hold the kinds of elections with these large workforces um, that result in unions. Some of the old National Labor Relations Board rules um, are needlessly constraining. So there have to be experiments, um, but I think we really do have to move beyond this knee-jerk criticism of unions. As many workers said to me, the only thing worse than my union is no union. Thank you, Annalise. I think you raised a lot of the points that I was going to raise, but I just, I think the thing that Lyft has done and the thing that I've seen, I don't disagree that there needs to be experimentation, but to what end, right? And experimentation so that workers can build real power and that what we're talking about here is a struggle for power, right? And so how do we, how do we ensure that there is a, a vehicle in which workers have more power that's sustainable? And I, and I kind of only have seen that done in a, in a collective bargaining contract, right? Like there are other ways that people can gain power, but a more sustainable way to, to access power, no matter who the person is, whether the CEO is a great one or not, right? Like there is something that exists beyond, um, be, beyond the personalities that have the ability to, to change real lives and um, impact people's uh, paychecks and whatever else that they need and, and dignity at work. So I do think that the way in which folks are thinking about the unions and how and how these other opportunities and experience uh, could kind of figure out how to work together. Because I think that's what Lyft is doing. It's like, there are these other opportunities. There are worker centers that are trying to do the right thing. And a lot of the workers would love to be in the union. And a lot of the worker centers would love for that to happen as well, as well as still do the work that they need to do that's outside. So I don't think it's the either or. I think it's how do we figure out how to do it together? Just one more very quick fact. Um, if you look at a chart on the decline of union membership since the um, late 1970s, it correlates exactly with the decline in uh, the numbers of people in the country who consider themselves middle class. So that's just that's just a fact. 
And Roy, talk a little bit about, you know, some of the firms that you've invested in, like UNIT and, and what you're doing. What are some of these kind of alternative models that you think you'd like to see more of? Sure. And I, I'll just say, I'll share a few examples, but the headline is we'd love to see more. We'd love to see more people who are founders, whether of companies or nonprofit organizations or new unions and talk to them. Not all of them can we invest in because we're an investment firm trying to make money, but um, we want to know about it and find ways to collaborate. And what I'd say is the, the headline of the dream is, are there forms of worker organization that might actually be good for the companies, for the workers, of course, and for the companies at which they are present? Because if they make those companies less successful, we've seen what happens to unionized industries and unionized companies in the market. And while there are some counterexamples of some unionized businesses performing better, it's not that hard to find examples of cases where unions harmed the performance of the, of the, of the, the company where the union is present. And by the way, I think unions are an essential option here. I'm not trying to badmouth unions. I'm trying to say that it's part of a milieu. I mean, I joined the union at Cal. Um, and served on the California Governor's Future of Work Commission, which was co-chaired by Mary Kay Henry from SEIU. Um, but just I'll get, share an anecdote of what a gulf there is in understanding, and then I'll tell you about some of the direct experiments. Mary Kay Henry and I spoke at a business conference, and it was a well-heeled business conference with a wonderfully prepared moderator and public company CEOs in attendance, and the journalist who introduced her said, this is Mary Kay Henry, the head of SEUI, which if you're in the labor movement would be like as unthinkable as calling, you know, Joe Biden, the president of the UA of S. It's just not a mistake you would make, but it reflects the lack of understanding. And one of those reasons I think is that the only option we have for unions is unions, not the only option, but the, the most common option is unions that are too big. Near as we can tell, fewer than 20 new independent unions, not a new local branch, but a new independent union are formed in the U.S. every year. As an innovator, I look at that and I say, well, that's evidence that there's not that much innovation happening in how unions form because you only have the established institutions. And so we invest in a company called Unit, which is at unitworkers.com. And in the same way that companies can spend lots of money on various consultants and vendors to bust a union, it's only fair that there should be a vendor who helps form the union. And so unit helps a workforce to form an independent union. They can then decide if they want to affiliate with one of the big um, you know, national labor unions, that's their choice. Um, but unit just had its first union formed, I think it was last week or earlier this week even, which is in North Carolina, which is a right to work state. So a state that most unions would traditionally just ignore because it's too hard to get unionizing activity to happen. And Piedmont Health Services United, which is a primary care provider, community health primary care provider, um, uh, you know, won overwhelmingly for a pretty small union. Uh, you know, the vote was 29 to three. And so what you see is there are models that can work at small scale. I also mentioned over in the um, Slido discussion, we invest in a company called Open Collective, that allows, among other uses, allows workers to easily form what's called a mutual aid society where they pool their resources and support one another. That's one version of what unions do. And, you know, my basic view on this is if you, I can find you people who are stalwart, well-intentioned labor advocates who will point at these new experiments and say, this is an example of everything wrong. And they'll bring the religion of how it's always been done, or they'll say that, well, you know, you can't have an improvement in labor backed by a capitalist. That's by definition wrong. And I think if we enter that kind of tribal religious thinking, we're just going to keep having the same results we've had. Um, and so I'm into experimentation. Unit is a great example of that. Open Collective is another. And I hope that that will create the awareness of what can be possible so that we can then enshrine some of that in law. Um, and I'll just say one more thing about law because it did come up in the chat and I think it's essential to mention. One major gap in current law is that it doesn't cover the independent contractors. If you are a 1099, then a union as it currently exists is not available to you. Other things might be available to you. You know, there's no reason 1099s couldn't elect a worker board representative, for example, but we're going to need to experiment because the old tools just are failing us. 
And to that end, so how do you, what do you do about independent contractors? Is that something that you've got to go to Congress to lobby for some kind of change in the, the labor relations law? I mean, how do those workers get the kind of protection that so many are clamoring for? Yeah. So I, first of all, I'm not one of them, so I'm hesitant to speak on their behalf, but I'll tell you my views on what might work and it'd be more important to hear from them, which is, no, I don't think we need to wait for Congress. In general, as much as I believe in legislative change and believe in our system, when we point at law as the solution, what can sometimes happen is it's disempowering to us as individuals. Those systems, they feel gargantuan, they feel unmoving, and they're not. The systems are just us, and the antidote is trying new things. And so what I believe is that what we ought to see among 1099s is a whole wave of experimentation. And we are seeing some of it. You know, there are organizations like Gig Workers Rising. There are the women organizing Mechanical Turks. By the way, I don't think it's an accident that the new wave of labor organizers tends almost without exception to be women and people of color. Um, you know, I think it's always been the people who feel like the system offers the least for them who act on the system to change it. So fair enough. And um and so I think that what we ought to see is trial and error. And, you know, that may mean doing things that are not covered under current law until law covers it. And, you know, the other thing I just say, and this is also to everybody in the audience, is we may be sitting here thinking, oh, there's some experts and they're talking about it. And, you know, they have ideas on what to do. This is a domain where none of us really knows the answer, I'll just say. And we're all making it up as we go. I mean, when we organized this Aspen Business Roundtable on organized labor, we were astonished to find ourselves possibly the preeminent business group talking about what to do about organized labor, which is kind of scary because we just got going. And so that, that's really a call to everybody here that your ideas, your attempts, your experimentation can be part of the solution. Twitter is one place where the conversation is, I think, really active and happening. It's certainly not the only place conversations like this one or another, but you know, it's a, it's a, it's a call to action for all of us. And Jennifer and Annalise, do you have anything to add to kind of the conundrum faced by independent contractors, these gig workers, these Uber drivers, et cetera? You know, how do they, what do they do to get the kinds of protections that they are, you know, that they want, that they're clamoring for? Right. I think at Lyft, we have a couple examples, some of our grantees that um, have been able to do tremendous work in spite of the fact that they're not a part of the National Labor Relations Act or have the ability to organize. So um, we've uh, had organizations that have been working with Tech 99, I mean, tech, tech workers who are 1099 and working with the unions to talk about these opportunities, to talk about what's happening and how to shift the field. And they've been working together. And I think that's an experimentation that we're still seeing to see, seeing how it's going to play out. I think we're seeing too, one of the folks uh, that we've been working with are the uh, nail salon workers in New York City who have been trying to figure out how they organize, mostly immigrant women of color who are wanting to figure out how to improve those standards in uh, New York City, where you would think it would not uh, be, you would not be able to get your nails done for so cheap because they have uh, undercut folks who are doing the nail, um, who are who are doing the work so much. So they've been able to organize in some ways and try to push legislation to actually happen to increase and improve standards um, all over. One of the things that Roy said that I, I wanted to talk about a little bit is that idea about working in the South. I think that's what we're seeing too in terms of how hard it's been, but there is jobs, opportunity, people who are moving to the South and that there's a shifting demographic that we are interested in in the Southern Worker Opportunity Fund to really figure out like, how do we uh, help build the infrastructure that can build like a large, a larger movement? Because it's already happening. And I think the more and more folks are interested in, in going to the South, the unions, uh, uh, philanthropy, um, the more it could change. Uh, and so we're, we're seeing that as an, a real opportunity as well. And then lastly, I think when we talk about access being the most fundamental part of all of this, access to the Labor Relations Act, what those who have it and, you know, have been trying to figure out how to win despite the many challenges in front of them. And then those who don't have access, like I said, with the nail salon workers and the 1099 um, tech workers and 
Uber drivers and how do we make sure that we're creating a space so, so that they can have access and change their working conditions? I, I think um, one of the things that um, both Roy and Jennifer have brought up that are really important is who is classified as a 1099. I call the gig economy an end run around the New Deal um, because it is a misclassification of workers who should be employees. They're disempowered workers. Um, their employers have a great deal more power they do than they do. And the labor protections of the New Deal that we're talking about here were supposed to equalize a little bit and, and allow workers certain basic protections as part of a national moral economy, if you will. Um, and so the Obama administration, Department of Labor, did start to try to address what they called misclassification of employees as independent contractors. And I think that that's something that has to continue to happen. Um, you know, whether it's the nail workers or the Uber drivers or adjunct professors, um, you know, who, I mean, that's a great example of a, of a workforce that has, you know, advanced degrees and has been totally impoverished um, by the gig economy. So that is crucial. Um, and I think we're going to have to figure out um, how to manage that. And I think it can come to some extent uh, via state and, and federal labor department rules. Um, but I think that actually there is going to have to be an updating um, of uh, the National Labor Relations Act and, and, um, and the definition of um, employee. It, it's, um, that's why we're 100 years back in many ways. Thoughts in, on broad-based. Annalise? Yes. Annalise, can you, can you hear me? Yeah. We I think we lost you for a minute. So oh. we didn't hear all of your answer, unfortunately. Oh. Okay. Um, well, what I was saying is I think we have to have a fundamental um, push to redefine uh, legally the meaning of employee. Um, and there are countries around the world, even dictatorships, ironically, the brutal dictatorship of Duterte, um, who you know originally ran in the Philippines as a populist, has addressed this issue of what the Philippine workers call contractualization, right? Everybody becoming a contract worker instead of uh, an employee. Uh, it's it's not real. It's, um, you know, it's, it, it's a way to impoverish workers at the cost of employers. Walmart, for example, has all these independent contractors who um, are purposely kept under uh, the number of hours per week that would make them legally classified as employees so they don't have to pay um, any of the kinds of benefits that, that federal or state uh, labor law require. So this is a huge this is a huge issue, and um, and it's one that we won't be able to bring real equity or justice unless we've dealt with. I want to get to a couple more of the audience questions. Uh, one of the questioners wanted to know, in the spirit of experimentation, what are the panelists' thoughts on broad-based industry-wide bargaining as a potential solve, as proposed by David Madland? Mm. Roy and Jennifer, you want to get into that, and then we can see what Annalise thinks as well. Oh, I mean, I, I'm, I think that that quote unquote sectoral bargaining is a very promising direction. You know, there are ways in which it has existed in the US in the past. There's a power question about how to make it happen um, because it requires enough of the companies and enough of the relevant labor organizations to all come to the table together almost happened it seemed in california uh and might still happen but yeah the short answer is yes and the longer problem to solve is how but this whole issue experimentation is great by the way but it's only one step once you experiment you got to enshrine that in laws that give everybody an equal playing field and in industries that give everybody an equal playing field and bargaining across an entire industry which happens, by the way, in industries that have trade unions. It happens to some degree in construction. It happens in Hollywood, for sure, seems like a very constructive direction. I think that we are seeing that, uh, similar to what Roy said, um, you're absolutely seeing how sec there could be a sectoral strategy in how we organize and how we bargain, because that's sort of the way things seem to be going. I think when you think about auto workers, when you're thinking about um, uh, industries that are, are all over, that folks have a similar interest to do it. Do I have the answer on how to do it? But I think Lyft is in a space where we are open and interested in figuring out like how folks are doing it and how we can support their work. 
the um, the forerunner to the National Labor Relations Act, the National Industrial Recovery Act, um, you know, right after uh, FDR's election, uh, had sectoral bargaining uh, with three uh, constituencies represented on the board. And this is also partly a, a, an idea that was sparked by Roy talking about having non-voting worker representatives on corporate boards. Um, and you know the the view of the of the Roosevelt administration economists was that um, you know an unruly economy, a constantly boom and busting um, economy, could be regulated if you if you get the input of all the major constituencies of which organized labor was one. And so it was organized labor, business, and consumers um, who uh, who negotiated sectoral you know, agreements on uh, wages and prices and, you know, and worker power and all the all the fundamentals of, of keeping an economy going. And I would suggest that we, we should go back to something like that. It certainly wasn't perfect. Um, Eleanor Roosevelt and the labor leader, Rose Schneiderman, were furious because uh, they were constantly lower wages negotiated, you know, for, uh, for women, um, for people of color. So it was far from perfect, but I think it's an interesting model. Um, and, you know, as we we look at a sort of unruly economy at the moment, it's something worth thinking about. And what are your thoughts about worker-owned co-ops? Is that a model that helps address workers' voice and power? That's from one of our audience members. Jennifer, you want to take that or Roy? I don't have much experience with worker-owned co-ops, but I have seen I have talked to some folks who have who are doing it, I think in North Carolina, and it seems pretty cool in terms of uh, the ability for workers. Um, you know, you're seeing right now with the great resignation and you're seeing um, folks organizing, you're seeing a lot of different things that are out there that say people want to figure out how to, um, you know, self-determine and and be able to be in a, in a place where they have some part ownership in it. So I don't know much about it, um, but I have heard that there's been some success stories. I think the one thing that I would want to make sure that there is back to access that like that the folks who are also starting these are intentionally about including Black, Indigenous, and people of color into this space because they may not always have or we may not always have the opportunities to have this sort of co-op, worker co-op uh, uh, experience or experiment. Yeah, I, I just add that the so worker co-ops are extremely promising and they sometimes work very well they're not an alternative to unions we see that with rei unionizing right now and rei is not just a worker co-op but it's a co-op and also has unionizing um the problem and and by the way the track record of worker co-ops is not oh these are always great businesses that thrive they sometimes work and sometimes don't as might be expected or sometimes work for a while as might be expected with any new or emerging effort, not that worker co-ops are that new, but emerging. And here's what I'd say, is that the problem we need to solve with worker co-ops is on some level, the problem we need to solve with worker organization generally is in some level our bigger problem, which is small scale democracies don't always work at representing the interests of all the people involved in them. And a lot of working people don't like their union. And I, I would agree with that comment about, well, I don't like the union, but the only thing worse is maybe not having one that, you know, a Churchill paraphrase or something. But the, uh, but still, you know, things like work rules and union activities that sometimes protect weak performers often end up harming the experience of strong performers. And that's an issue with workplace democracy. That is something we need to iterate on uh, and, uh, and figure out how to solve. We don't have great solutions for it. I will say I'm inspired here by the Johns Hopkins professor, Hari Han, who has this line that democracy is a muscle. And my hope about worker organizations is that by exercising the muscle of democracy at a scale that people can relate to the workplace, we as a society can build the skills to exercise the muscle of democracy at the ballot box and all these other places. I mean, no wonder people behave strangely at the polls. If that's their only democratic thing they're doing, and it's once every two or four years, you know, if you went and hit the gym once every two or four years, maybe I should speak to this, uh, you know, you wouldn't be that good at it. And so I really do believe that democracy is a muscle idea. And Annalise and Jennifer, I think you spoke to this a little bit, but we have another audience question. Since it's very difficult to pass 
legislation in Congress, is updating labor law on the state level more realistic? Well, one thing that I think is a, is a great example in terms of making the NLRA more inclusive is the um, domestic workers' bills of rights that the National Federation of Domestic Workers under Ajin Pu have been able to pass in 10 states. Now, there is a federal law um, that uh, originally VP Harris and now um, Rep uh, Pramila Jayapal and Kristen Gillibrand have introduced um, to try to cover domestic workers. But it's amazing that 85 years out, right? We still uh, have not um, have not covered domestic workers who make up such a huge labor force in the United States, especially if you you know you bring in um, people who are doing home health care and people who are um, even caring for sick relatives. But you know, so in California, there's been some interesting legislation to cover those people. So I think I think state legislation is key. Um, state legislation has had a lot to do with raising uh, the prevailing wage in this country. When California and New York passed the $15 wage um, in 2016, um, it started a trend where now 40, more than 40% of, of low-wage workers are in states with a, with a $15 minimum wage. So, um, And even municipal, there have even been um, municipal laws um, raising the wage and also providing uh, sick paid sick leave, which is brand new in the United States, shockingly, um, for many many, many, many workers. Uh, so yeah, I think that strategy has been one of the experiments that grass, the grassroots uprising uh, that's been going on since 2012 has, has really taken with, on with earnest enthusiasm. Yeah, I agree. And we're winding I down with our time. So Jennifer, you want to just jump in real quick and then we're going to do a round round. Yeah, so the only thing I wanted to add is that um, we are seeing it on the state, on the statewide, state, state basis i think of folks organizing and, and winning things at the elections i think in new york they have the farm workers bill that happened recently that they are now organizing and then i think part of it too and something that we're thinking about with um the southern work opportunity fund is the right to work laws right like where can we push back at and i think some of them are trying to be some states are trying to expand it so that it's about fighting those fighting back on those as well All right, so we've got about two or three minutes left. So what I want is from each one of you to either expand about upon something that you've already talked about that you want to just kind of buttonhole um, at the end or bring up one last point that you think is important to get on the table that we weren't able to address. And we can start with uh, Annalise. Okay, the one thing that I learned in doing the research for my last book in the US and abroad is that um, women's issues are are very front and center. So um, uh, there's the Me Too McDonald's movement that struck in something like a dozen cities to protest uh, sexual harassment. This is a global movement against sexual misconduct. The hotel workers hands off pants on. Um, that the, the labor movement now is also being driven by an attempt to finally bridge the gender wage gap to fight pregnancy discrimination, um, which has been a huge issue, especially with big companies like Walmart that for a long time refused um, to abide. And I think those are really interesting areas of organizing, particularly pregnancy discrimination, because it unites people across right-left divides, um, as does the living wage movement. Roy, you want to go next? I think I just want to underline the thing I said, which is it will take all of us. So if you're sitting here thinking somebody is the enemy and you're the good guys or the good people, and the other person, you know, that other entity is the, the man, the one to take down. That's, to me, not the kind of thinking that's going to get us there. I will take the labor movement literally at its uh, desire for solidarity and say all of us need to be in solidarity with one another. And that is going to be incredibly uncomfortable um, as all of us try to figure it out. And Lord knows... I feel incredibly uncomfortable as a person with the word capitalist in my job title showing up in some of these situations, just trying to figure out together, how do we make a system that actually functions for all of us? Great. And Jennifer, you want to take us home? Sure. I just I just want to say that we're in a pivotal moment. I want to thank Aspen for even bringing this conversation um, together, right, so that we can talk about it and hear different views and have different worldviews about it, but ultimately try to figure out how do we make uh, this 
how do we make sure that workers have an opportunity to to be able to fight for the things that they need? Because we know how hard it is to do that, um, to to take care of families in this day and age. It's tough, all the things that are going on in the world. So we don't we we can't just take for granted that this this um these opportunities for folks to be able to organize is just gonna be here and that we make this more than a moment, but also a movement. Wonderful. I think we're at the end of our time, so I'll throw it back to Maureen for closing remarks. Fantastic. Thank you all so much. This was terrific. Apologies to the audience. We had a couple of little technical hiccups today, but it was well worth living through them for this uh, conversation. So really appreciate um, all of this uh, honest and, and open exchange of views from Jennifer, Annalise, Roy, Sharif, fabulous moderating. Um, thanks to Secretary Walsh for kicking us off. Um, and thanks to all of you for your comments and questions. Really appreciate you being here today. Uh, please join us next time for the rewards of work, lessons from the Fair Labor Standards Act. That came up a little bit in today's conversation. We'll be diving into it more on April 7th at 2 o'clock Eastern time. So uh, please join us then. And just a last final thank you to my wonderful colleagues, Matt Helmer, Tony Mafia, Yuri Chang, Victoria Prince, who are all kind of sitting behind the scenes, making everything work. Really appreciate all your hard work in getting these things done. Thanks everybody for joining us today. See you next time. Thank you.